Well, good morning, Facebook Live. Good morning, congregation. Good morning to everyone that may be watching this or tuning into our live stream for the first time. Or maybe you're just one of our congregants and this is the only way that we can enjoy church together. Either way, I'd like to say good morning and welcome. And I'd like to say thank you for joining us. Before I get started this morning, I just want to kind of um, point out a couple of things. Um, first of all, I just want to point out that even though the physical church building is closed, the church is not. The church is open. The church is always open, regardless of whether or not we can come together in a group or whether or not we have to go remote contact only. The church is always open and will continue to be open. I've heard that so many times from several different uh, ministers throughout this past week, and it's just such a prevalent truth that we can't forget, is that even though the building is closed, the church is still open. And what that means is, is we are taking every single step that we possibly can so that we as a church can continue to be a church even though we're not in the building together. Um, a couple of things that we've been working on just to kind to reiterate those. For those of you that worship God through your giving, we have created the space for that through the Tithely app. That's just T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y app. You can find it on the App Store or through Google Play. Um, you can also give through the website. So for those of you who worship through giving, you have ways that you can continue to do that and worship God through your generosity. Um, also, we have kind of been discussing and playing with the idea of creating a space, um, prayer and worship space on here um, with Faith kind of leading a live worship prayer set. Um, we're dealing with some copyright laws um, to get our streaming license, but we will have that available soon. I'm going to try and get that available this week so that maybe Saturday night or even next Sunday morning, maybe we can have a space for that as well because I know that worship is extremely important. We really value worship, and some of you are missing that opportunity. So. I've seen that some of you have created your own worship sets at your house, and that's amazing. But just to create and extend a, another opportunity to you to worship, we want to create that space for you as well. Um, also, we have our Wednesday night discipleship interactive uh Q&A time where we want you guys to send questions. If it's questions about COVID-19, if it's questions about um, the Bible, where you're reading at, if it's questions about our weekly reading, if it's just questions about life in general, feel free to either private message us through Face Facebook or through the Garden Facebook, or you can text or message us that way. Um, send us your questions. If you want it to remain private, we can answer those privately. If you want it to be a question that we discuss in length on a live video, then just let us know that as well, and we will be happy to do that. Also, we're going to try and create a communion space um, where Faith and I do a communion service live, um, just a short five, ten minute service um, where we take communion so that you have that as a template so you can take communion in your home as well. So we are taking various steps so that we can continue to be and function as the church even though the building's closed. And what we ask of you is something that Faith and I have been doing already to kind of, you know, lead by example. And that is we want you to begin to check on people. And I've said this and I'll continue to say it. It doesn't have to be 50 people. You don't have to check on 50 people, but find one or two people a day or every other day and just reach out to them and say, hey, do you have food? Do you have water? Do you have everything that you need? Do you need any assistance whatsoever? And I would be glad to help that. And that way we can extend the generosity and the love of Jesus Christ because Jesus says that's how we'll know that he is real, that we are his disciples, is that we love one another. So in this time where everybody's scared, where everybody has fear, Let's just be, continue to show the love of Jesus, okay? Um, I do have one more thing that I want to share with you guys. Um, you guys may notice as this progresses, whether this is just a few weeks or whether this turns out to be a month or two months or however long this quarantine, this shelter in place lasts, however long the restrictions on public gatherings last, um, you may notice that my messages aren't going to look like a lot of messages that you're seeing. For example, there are a lot of ministers out there that are preaching messages in relation to COVID-19 or coronavirus. A lot of preachers out there are preaching messages of God's protection. They're preaching messages of hope in the midst of suffering. They're preaching messages on faith. They're preaching messages on God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. A lot of preachers are preaching messages based on the COVID-19, and I'm not going to do that. Now, I'm not saying that they're wrong in what they're doing because they're not. They're following the Lord and they're blessed. And I am so thankful that you have ministers out there that are doing that. However, I've prayed about it and I've sought God's 
mind for me in this season. And God kind of led me through a couple of examples, and I'd like to share those with you quickly. Um, we know that Christ preached the messages and the parables and the teachings that he did, and his messages were never really about Roman oppression or government. His messages were always about the kingdom of God in spite of the circumstances. Christ's circumstances didn't dictate his messages. His messages dictated his circumstances. And then we look at Paul and Nero and people being killed and the city being burned and all of that. And Paul's messages were about the kingdom of God with small mentions here and there concerning, concerning the circumstances. But his messages were about Jesus. His epistles are about Jesus and the church and the kingdom of God. And then I think even more recently to a man that I um, have followed after, Smith Wigglesworth. He lived during the Nazi era and the Third Reich and bombings and people being killed by the millions, literally by the millions. And he didn't preach about Hitler. He preached about Jesus. And so for me personally, as I've sought the Lord and as I've prayed about what I should preach and if I should dictate my messages around this COVID-19 crisis, or if I should continue on the same track that I was already on, the answer to me was pretty clear that God was leading me to continue the track that we were already on. With that being said, we are continuing our Encounters with Christ series, our Encounters with Jesus series. This is going to be the third week in that series. And before we get to the Word, let's just have a moment of prayer. I think that this is a perfect prayer in the midst of pandemic. I think that that's how we should always start our services anyway, but even more so now because of our circumstances. Amen. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. As always, I thank you because even though the circumstances may seem crazy and even though we can't come together and even though there's a lot of things that we don't understand and that are confusing and that we may not have peace about, we know that you are our peace so that when we may not have peace about the circumstances we can have peace in the circumstances because you are our peace even though the circumstances may not be joyous we know that we have you and you are our joy so that we can have joy in the worst circumstances we can have joy in the midst of affliction we can have peace in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of a storm in the midst of affliction in the midst of sickness we can have peace and comfort knowing that you are our peace and our comfort Lord, I just pray that you use this as an opportunity to turn people back to the gospel. Lord, in this time of unprecedented fear and concern and confusion and panic, Lord, I pray that you use this to open people's eyes to the fact that their life is but just for a moment, that they will live and they could die at any time, that their life is a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Another allegory is their life is as the grass which rises today and then the sun comes out and burns it tomorrow. I just want this situation to be a stern reminder to everyone about the temporary or finiteness of life. And God, in that, I pray that people's eyes would be turned to the eternal, to what happens after this life expires. And the, the fact that they only have this life to dictate that life that this might be an opportunity for people to humble themselves and come back to you and for our nation as a whole to humble itself and come back to you because we have drifted so very, very far from the truth claims of the gospel. Lord Jesus, I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are on our third part of the series, Encountering Jesus or Encounters with Jesus. And I want to just kind of take a second to recap. Many of you who have listened to my series know that every time I preach, I always take the first part of the message to recap what we have preached. You know, it's a, an intentional reminder or a purposeful redundancy. It's just bringing you back through. Peter says that I remind you of these things, though you already know them. So that's what we're going to do. So when we started this series off, we began in John chapter 4 and we looked at the woman at the well. And when we looked at this woman, the thing that kind of rang through and rang supreme was that the woman had nothing going for her. She wasn't the right gender. She wasn't the right social status. She wasn't the right religious affiliation. She wasn't the right ethnicity. She didn't have the right family. She didn't have the right geographical location. She didn't have the right background. She hadn't lived her life in an appropriate way. So everything about this woman was wrong. Everything about this woman disqualified her from being used by God. But yet it is exactly this woman who Jesus chooses to make a sideline 
out of his normal track to meet her and let her have an encounter with the Messiah. And you know how the conversation plays out. It's a little bit of small talk and then it comes to the point about Jesus and the well of living water. And she says, give me this water that I may never thirst again because her mind is so focused on natural things when what Jesus was actually talking about was the gift of the Holy Spirit that would produce in a person a well of living water that would run and that no matter what the circumstances dictated, they would never be thirsty for the Spirit because they would always have the Spirit being inside them. So just like my prayer a moment ago, that we can have joy even when the circumstances say that we have no joy, because we have the Holy Spirit inside us and He is the source of our joy. So we have a well producing that joy inside of us even when the situation and the circumstances would try to do everything in its power to drain that joy. We can have a peace that goes beyond understanding even though everything in our life says we should not have a peace or a comfort or a hope. The Holy Spirit is a well inside of us that says even though all of these things may be true, all of these circumstances may be bad. All of these circumstances may be negative. All of these circumstances may be draining. The Holy Spirit inside of us says that we have what God says we have, even when our situation says we have nothing. So this woman who had nothing going for her encountered Jesus and then in fact had everything going for her. The person that started with nothing found Jesus and had everything. Her life was so transformed and changed by this encounter with Jesus that she runs back to her village and she tells everybody that she meets about the encounter that she had with Jesus. And she says, this man told me everything about myself, things that he had no way of knowing. And so they come and they find and they meet him. And it says that many people from the village believed on him because of her testimony, because of the things that she said to them, because of the message that she shared. And then it goes even further to say that others who didn't believe on him for her sake began to believe on him because of who he is, because of what he said and what he did for him. So you had the people that believed because of her testimony. And then you had the people that were just curious by her testimony and followed and found Jesus and then believed because of Jesus himself. Now, the reason that this is important is because this woman in our day would have had no qualifications to be a minister or preacher at all. In her day, she had even less. But Jesus used her to reach a multitude of people. And so many of you are sitting there saying that I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough. I don't have the right background. I didn't live my life right. I'm late in age. I don't know what to do or how to share the gospel or how to tell somebody about Jesus. Do you think that this woman who had five previous marriages and was living with a guy that wasn't her husband was young? She was probably well advanced in years, so she had nothing going for her, not even her age. And Jesus still uses her to reach people. So you're never disqualified unless you disqualify yourself. God can use anybody. And then we go to the next portion of our series, which was last week when we were in Mark chapter 10 and we started with verse 17 and it was a conversation of a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler was the complete opposite of the woman at the well. He had everything going for him. He had money. He had servants. He was the right background. He had the right family. He was of the right religious affiliation. He kept the commandments. He lived his life from his youth up. So he never had this transgression period where he was wild and partying and everything. No, he lived his life the way that the society deemed that he should live his life. So he had a good reputation. He was popular. He was wealthy. He had everything going for him. And he comes to Jesus in that faithful conversation. He says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? And that was the focus of our message last week when what Jesus was saying is not that I am good or that I'm not good, but rather that if you're going to call me good, which I am, you have to go the next step and call me God. And the young man didn't understand that. But Jesus continues to humor him and says, you know the commandments. And he lists off a few and the young man says, good teacher, I've kept these from my youth up. I'm in. I've got it. I've inherited eternal life. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And he loves him so much that he's not willing to leave him where he was at. But he loves him so much that he's willing to tell him the difficult truth, the hard truth. He's willing to share with him things that other people who didn't love him might not be willing to share. See, our love for others should force us to tell them the difficult truths. Our love for others should force us to have those complicated conversations. We shouldn't just let people continue on their trackway to hell. If we really love them, then we're going to tell them about the truth of the gospel. 
Jesus loved him. And so he told him this one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the young man left and he was deeply discouraged because he had great possessions. So the things that he possessed actually began to possess him. And it was no longer simple possessions, but they had become an idol in his life. They had become something that he worshipped without even realizing that he was doing it. He valued his possessions even above eternal life. How do I know that? Because he asked, what must I do to have inter- to inherit eternal life? Got a little bit tongue-tied there for a moment. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. The young man doesn't want to leave his possessions because he had many of them. So he valued his current temporary possessions above eternal life. The one thing that Jesus was saying that this man lacked was not that he was poor. It wasn't a poverty gospel. But rather, Jesus was saying, you don't have me. You've kept the commandments, you've honored the commandments, you've esteemed the commandments, but you've never fulfilled them. You've never completed them, you've never done away with them permanently. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can fulfill the commandments. And so what he's saying is the truth of how to inherit eternal life is the fulfillment of the law, and you can't do that without Jesus. You can't do that without Jesus. And so the young man leaves deeply discouraged. So the man who had everything didn't have Jesus, and so he really had nothing. And the woman who had nothing had Jesus, so she really had everything. It's an interesting contrast. And I'm going to be honest, I had another message that was going to follow this that was going to continue that contrast. But when I began to seek God about how I should proceed in the light of this COVID and this ever-escalating COVID-19 situation... I didn't feel that I should dictate my message based upon the coronavirus, but I did come to learn that the message that I had originally prepared wasn't fitting for the moment. So we are going to take a shift from what I was going to originally preach, and we're going to go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 33. John chapter 18, verse 33. And this is going to be the conversation that Pilate has with Jesus. This, just to set the stage a little bit, this is after Jesus' earthly ministry. This is at the end of it. This is after he's prayed in the garden. This is after he's been arrested. This is after he's had his religious trial in Caiaphas' house. This is, in fact, his civic trial. This is at the end of his ministry. This is right before the crucifixion. This is right before he's beaten at the post with the cat of nine tails. This is the end of his ministry. And the religious leaders have just brought Jesus to Pilate, asking him to be crucified. And let's start reading. In verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So I want to go back and let's just start from the beginning and let's just unpack this a little bit. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and calls Jesus to him. And as the conversation proceeds, Pilate asks this question. He says, "I am I a Jew? Some translations read, I'm not a Jew, am I? So this is not a question where Pilate's in a state of confusion saying, Jesus, am I a Jew? He knows good and well that he's not. He's a Roman. This question is a rhetorical question for the purpose of conveying the fact that this doesn't pertain to Pilate in his mind. He's saying this is a squabble among your own people. This is a religious debate between you and your religion. It has nothing to do with me. I'm a Roman. I'm not even a Jewish citizen. I'm a Roman. I have my own religion. I have my own gods. I have my own thoughts. I have my own preoccupations. This does not concern me. And I love the fact that this question is followed a little bit later by this statement. What have you done? 
And sometimes for me personally, and you may do this also, or you may not, but I like to put myself in the situation. I like to try and put myself in those conversations to see what the people involved might be thinking, what they might be feeling, and how they might be reacting. Because we can look at this as just a simple textbook and just read it line by line and never put any emotion in it, and we would forget that these are real people, and they're having real emotions. Yes, Jesus is God. But he was also truly a man. So he's going to have emotions and thoughts and things that are going on inside of him in the midst of this conversation. And so I would never claim to know exactly what Jesus was thinking in this situation. But I like to guess a little bit. And so if you'd humor me, I just can only imagine what Christ would be thinking when Pilate asked this question. What have you done? I actually kind of get cracked up because in my mind, Jesus is sitting there and Pilate says, what have you done? And Jesus is like, oh, you know, nothing. Um, I mean, I took a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish and I fed 5,000 people. And then that wasn't enough. So, you know, I took a few less loaves of bread and still a couple fish. And then I fed 4,000 people, not counting the women and children in either scenario. So it was probably closer to 10,000 on both accounts. But, you know, that's not really a big deal. Oh, and uh, I've raised a couple people from the dead. Um, one of them was actually dead for four days and I raised him. Um, I've healed thousands of people. You know, I've cast out, I don't know how many demons. Um, but you know, not really. Oh, and there's one more thing. Um, oh yeah, I almost forgot. I took the sin of the entire world upon myself and I'm in the process of paying the substitutionary sacrifice for that sin that I just took upon myself, but I'm not really done anything. I know that might not be as amusing to you as it is to me, but I think about that and I'm sitting here and you've got this man who is not only a pagan, but he's obviously a sinful man. He's put to death countless people. He's had people tortured and beaten. And he's asking the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Holy One, what have you done? As if Jesus had a crime. As if Jesus had done something wrong. Continuing on, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And I personally think that the reason that Jesus phrases it this way is because Pilate's question, am I a Jew? Like, does this even pertain to me? Because Pilate originally asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer or respond to that. And other than, do you ask this of your own accord or do you ask this because others? Pilate is asking Jesus or insinuating that none of these situations concern him at all. And Jesus says, he kind of transcends the conversation a little bit. Jesus has such a tendency to do that. He transcends the conversation. And Pilate's talking about a natural kingdom and the kingdom of the Jews. And Jesus transcends that and says, my kingdom is not of this world, therefore it does pertain to you. And he goes on and he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Us in our natural mindset, Jesus has spiritual conversations and we pull it back to the natural. That happened with the rich young ruler. That happened with the woman at the well. That happened with Nicodemus in the conversation in the garden. It happens over and over and over again. When Jesus starts to communicate a spiritual truth, we are stuck in our natural ties and we can't see beyond the reality that we can feel and touch. And it's the same is true in this COVID-19 situation when everybody's panicking and there's this pandemic and everybody's concerned. We can't see beyond our instant reality to see what God might be doing in the spiritual or in the supernatural in the midst of this situation. So you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. Some translations actually affirm this as a positive. So it would say, Jesus says, you say that I am a king, or you say correctly that I am a king, because Jesus is saying, yes, you say that I'm a king. But if I might allow for my own interpretation of this a little bit, I feel like Jesus is saying, you say that I'm a king, but it goes so far beyond that because I'm not a king. I'm the king. In fact, I am the king of all kings. And my kingdom is not of this world, and therefore all the kingdoms that are of this world are in subjection to the kingdom that is mine, that is over and not of this world. Meaning the word of, and we're going to talk about that again here in just a second, but the word of means brought forth from or coming out of. 
It means birthed in or birthed by or brought forth by. So when Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, it means that my kingdom was not created in this world. My kingdom was not born or derived or made or manufactured in this world. The kingdom of the Jews, that was made in the world. The kingdom of the Romans, that was made in the world. But the kingdom that Christ owns was not made in the world. It was made in the heavens. And therefore, everything that is in the world is subject to everything that is in the heavens. So the kingdoms that are in this world are subject to the kingdom that is of that world. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. Now, some people will assume that for this purpose is talking about the kingdom or talking about Jesus being a king. Jesus was a king before he came into the world. He was the king of kings when he sat in eternity with God before the foundation of the earth. He has always been a king. That's not the purpose of Jesus coming into the world. He was a king before he came. Here's the purpose. To bear witness to the truth. Notice that. To bear witness to the truth. Definite article meaning one. See, I can say this is a pulpit meaning that it's one of many. Or I can say this is the pulpit, meaning it's mine, and it's the only one. Jesus says, the truth. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is, here's the word again, of the truth listens to my voice. When Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth, what he's in fact saying, if you look at his ministry, is he's coming to bear witness to himself being the Son of God, the Messiah. He's coming to bear witness to the invasion of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God into the earth. He's coming to bear witness to the transition from the old covenant into the new covenant, from the law into the grace. He's coming to bear witness to the move of God in the earth. He's coming to bear witness to the truth, which is Christ Jesus. So when Pilate says in a moment, what is truth? His question is wrong because it's not what is truth, but rather it should be who is truth. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ is truth. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That word of, as we just said, means brought forth out of or born by or created in or bringing it out of something. So when he says everyone that is of the truth, what he's saying is everyone that is born in the truth. Everyone that is created in the truth. Everyone that is coming out of the truth. So that might sound familiar because Christ talks about being born again in his conversation with Nicodemus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says that everyone that is in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So what he's saying here is everyone that has been created again, everyone that has been remade, everyone that has been born again, everyone that is saved, everyone that is converted, everyone that submits themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is of truth and so they hear his voice this might sound like john chapter 10 when jesus talks about the good shepherd and his sheep and he says my sheep hear my voice and the voice of a stranger they won't hear so this whole conversation being predicated about truth the thing that i want you to understand is that truth has to come from jesus truth has to come from jesus because he is the truth in theology we have these things called, and it's also existent in apologetics and in philosophy, but you have a thing called the first truth or a primary truth. And then everything else is a subsidy of that. So you have a first truth and then you have a second truth. Meaning that, I'm trying to give a good example, a first truth, the only first truth is God. So any other thing that we might deem as true is a product of the first truth. So for example, there is God. That's the first truth. The second truth, God created the world. God created the world is a second truth because it's based on the reality of the first truth, if that makes sense. So what we're trying to follow this progression here is Jesus is saying, everyone that is of truth, everyone that is of me, hears my voice. Now in this situation, this is so, so important. You have truth and you have facts. And some of you may have heard me mention this before. But truth and facts are not the same thing. Let me explain. A fact is an accurate observation or assessment of a thing. For example, I could say that this wall behind me is gray. That is a fact. 
It's an accurate observation of the color of the wall. However, if I come in here and I take paint and a roller and I make this wall blue and then I continue to say the wall behind me is gray, that would be a lie because the fact would be that the wall is blue. The wall is no longer gray. So the fact has changed. For example, on Thursday, I looked at the COVID-19 cases in the state of Mississippi and we had 60. There were 60 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Mississippi. The next day, there were 80 more. So that would put the total on Friday up to 140 cases of COVID-19 in the state of Mississippi. If I continued on Friday to tell people that there were 60 confirmed cases of the COVID-19 in Mississippi, only 60, I would be lying because the fact would be that there are now 140. The fact would no longer be that there are 60, if that makes sense. Truth does not change. Truth is not subject to change. It's not subject to time. It doesn't have anything that will ever alter. Truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is what Hebrews 13.8 says of Jesus. Truth is truth regardless. Facts change. Truth doesn't. So in this situation, when everybody's telling you, oh, the COVID-19 has a 4% kill rate. Oh, the COVID-19 is killing this many people. Oh, this is going on. This is going on. This is going on. And your observation and your intake of all these facts, do not forget that those are all subject to change. And the only thing that you can take to the bank, the only thing that you can count on yesterday, today, and every day for the rest of your life and on into eternity forever is the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Facts change, truth doesn't. And so when we talk about the facts, the facts will rob you of your peace. The facts will rob you of your joy. The facts will steal your hope. The facts will hinder your faith. The facts will try to tear you apart from Jesus and try to get you in a position where you're trying to do everything and create and manufacture everything on your own, that you're trying to be your own provider, that you're trying to be your own protector, that you're trying to be your own healer, that you're trying to be your own hope, trying to be your own assurance. But if you have your faith and your hope and your joy and your peace all grounded in the truth that is Jesus then you're not going to be disrupted by the facts, knowing that they are here today and gone tomorrow, that they'll change and continue to change because such is the course of facts. But you stay still, grounded, standing upon the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can rest in facts and have no rest at all. Or you can rest in truth and have all the peace and all the joy and all the hope and all the faith and assurance that everything is going to work out. Because the promises of God for those that are in the truth stand sure. If you're not in the truth, then you cannot hear the voice of Christ. And so if you're not in the truth, the only voice that you hear isn't a voice at all. It's just a bunch of noise. And that's the noise of facts and the enemy. Let's go to ver uh, the next chapter. Chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16. John chapter 19, verse 16. So he, meaning Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they, the religious, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. See, I want to focus back in on, because we can go all the peripheral routes, but this series is ultimately about people that encounter Jesus and what it does to them. And so Pilate, when he encounters Jesus and they have this conversation back and forth of what is truth, am I a Jew, what have you done, this whole conversation back and forth, I think that the real intent and what happens to Pilate is represented right here. And I could be wrong, but this is what I think. Pilate puts on the cross a sign, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king, 
definite article, the king of the Jews. The problem with this is, is Pilate's original rhetorical question was, am I a Jew? Or I'm not a Jew, am I? Meaning that this really doesn't have any concern for me. This really doesn't pertain to me at all. This doesn't matter to me. I'm a Roman. I have my own gods. I have my own affiliations. I have my own thoughts, my own interests, my own um, presuppositions, my own ideas. I am not affiliated with this at all. And you would think after the conversation that they had that there was some change. And there probably was some guilt and things with the washing of the hands and saying, I find no guilt in this man, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is, is when all is said and done, when the cross is put up and Jesus is crucified on the side of the cross or on the top of the cross, he puts a sign saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, not the king of the world, not the king of an a kingdom that's of another world, not the king of the Romans, nothing. The king of the Jews, meaning to me, I believe that Pilate represented the idea that Jesus was important, that he was a king, that he had a kingdom, that he represented something bigger, but it didn't pertain to him. And isn't this the common reoccurring problem in Christianity today? Or just in the world, in our attempts at evangelism, so often we have conversations with people and we tell them of the gospel and we tell them of the truth claims and they're like, well, that's good. You know, that, that works for some people, but it's just not really my deal. It's just not really my, my bet. It's just not really my game. It's not my cup of tea. Jesus works for other people, but he doesn't work for me. I heard this once. Well, Jesus is great. But he can't help me. He can't help me control my temper, meaning that the person who said this put his temper above the power of Jesus Christ, which is foolishness. But Jesus is good as long as he's somebody else's king. And that's our problem in evangelism. When we try to evangelize to people and get them to see the truth claims of Jesus Christ, they say things like, well, that's just the opium of the masses. That's just another religion. Jesus is great. He's one of many ways into heaven, but he's not the only way, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on and on and on. And people have this mindset of, okay, Jesus Christ is okay for somebody else. He's just all right with me, but he's not for me. It's not pertaining to me. I've got my own ideas, my own thoughts about God, my own thoughts about religion. And I like to take a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here and just kind of have my own potluck of what I think religion is. And I'm just going to go with that because Christianity is just not for me. So Jesus is king. He's the son of God, but he's somebody else's king and it doesn't pertain to me at all. And that's the common thing that we see when we try to get the lost people to understand that Jesus is in fact the son of God and the king of kings. Is They want to acknowledge that Jesus is okay, but they don't want to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that goes into the second aspect of this, that in the church we have so many people that are so willing to run forward and bow their heads and hold their arms out and say, pray for me, I need to be saved. But then the next day comes and the salvation that they once said has a few demands on it, meaning that their life should not be the same that it was. You know, we want salvation without sanctification. We want grace without giving anything back to God. We want Christianity without cost. And the news is, the difficult news is, is there's no such thing. Christianity without cost is a complete lie. Salvation without sanctification is not the gospel. And so you have so many people that are like, I just would like Jesus if I can still have control of my life. If I can still do the same things that I was doing, if I can still go about my life the same way, then I would love to have Jesus involved or along for the ride, but if I have to make Jesus Lord, I don't want to go that route. It's all right for other people to make Jesus Lord. It's all right for other people to surrender to the gospel. But I want to do my thing and let Jesus just be there. It's, you know, fire insurance, standby, co-pilot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I love this quote. One of my favorite preachers is a man named Paul Washer, and he tells a story. And the story is like this. He says, say that I was going to a conference or say that I was 
I'll just put myself in this story and kind of adopt it for our own purposes a little bit. Say that I was coming here to preach this live stream or just on a Sunday morning when everybody was here gathered and service is supposed to start at 1030, but the pastor's not here. 11 o'clock comes and the pastor's still not here and everybody's kind of restless. Like, what, are we not having church? Do we, do we need to leave? What? And then like five, 10 minutes after 11 o'clock. So 40 minutes late, I run through the door and I'm disheveled. My shirt's torn. You know, I'm just kind of just all, all out of whack. And uh, everybody's like, what's going on? He's like, look, I'm sorry. I, I say, look, I'm sorry that I'm late. Um, here's what happened. I was driving across the Bay St. Louis Bridge and my car got a flat tire. So I pulled off, but there wasn't a huge space for me to pull off. So I was kind of half in the road, half out, but I had to change my tire. So I was out and I was changing my tire and I dropped one of the lug nuts and it rolls out into the road a little bit. And I look and there doesn't appear to be anything coming. So I go out and I go to grab the lug nut and I look up and I get hit by an 18 wheeler going 65 miles an hour. And then I get up and I fix my flat tire and then I drive and I, that's why I was late. You would think one of two things. You would think, A, I was a liar, or B, that I was had just lost my mind and I went completely insane. Because you would know that there is no way that I could come into contact with something as powerful as an 18-wheeler and not be changed. But yet that's what we want in Christianity is we want to come into contact with the king of the universe and not let him change us at all. That's what the rich young ruler wanted. He wanted Jesus to come into his life and say, you're good. You've got it under control. Everything is a-okay. Just keep doing what you're doing and get the seal of approval. Pilate wanted Jesus to be the king of the Jews, but not his own king. The only person that actually got it was the woman at the well, at least so far in our study. The woman at the well who realized this means a complete upheaval of my life. Now, granted, she didn't have anything to lose. In the grand scheme of things, some of us got a lot more to lose than others. Some of us got nice houses, nice cars, nice things, lots of money. And God wants to call us to be a missionary in Africa. And we're like, I can't go there. Look at the things I'd have to give up to do that. Because we want Christianity as long as Christianity means our life stays the same. And you cannot encounter Jesus, truly encounter him, and your life stay the same. You can encounter an aspect of Jesus. You can encounter a teaching about Jesus. You can encounter people that know Jesus and your life stay the same. But you cannot encounter Jesus and your life stay the same. Because if you encounter Jesus, truly encounter him and truly experience him and truly surrender to him, your life is about to get completely flipped upside down. Because Christianity means that Jesus takes the reins. That Jesus, to quote a bad country song, Jesus takes the wheel, and Jesus is now the driver and the pilot, and we are no longer in control. That we wake up and we say, okay, God, how do I move forward from where I'm at now? That it's no longer, okay, God, this is what I want, this is what my desires are. This is what my ambitions are. Now it's Jesus, what ambitions and desires would you have for me to have? How would you have me move forward? How would I progress in this gospel? And that's where, the, where Christianity differs from everything else. is because Christianity doesn't have a side A and a side B, that you can have the radicals over here and the not-so-radicals down here. It just doesn't work that way. To be a Christian is to be radical. To follow Christ and pursue holiness is to be radical. These people that surrender their lives and go to foreign countries and give up everything to be missionaries, they're not radicals, they're just Christians that have found to surrender to God and move in the direction that he's called them. And just like we found with the woman at the well in the first part of our series, it's not about what you have. It's not about what you know. It's not about where you're from or your background or what you can do or what you can accomplish or the gifts and the talents that you have. It's about whether or not you have that well of living water placed inside of you, which is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit can do things in you that you never thought possible. The Holy Spirit can do, use you to accomplish a great feat regardless of what your physical and natural and social and geographical, economical 
limitations may be, the Holy Spirit can supersede those and move beyond those. You know, we think about people like Moses that had a speech impediment and God used him to lead an entire nation, millions of people. We think about Jonah that ran from God who had a hatred problem or a grudge problem against a specific group of people. And God used him to flip Nineveh upside down. We think about Peter who was impulsive and shot off at the mouth. And God used him to be one of the leading figures of the early church. We think about Paul who murdered Christians and imprisoned Christians and persecuted them and continued to go and do the things that um, Judaism would do against heretics towards Christians and blaspheme the name of Jesus. And God used him to be one of the greatest apostles. So we think about these people that have limitations, and we could go on and on and on. Gideon was a coward. David, um, you know, not only did he have several wives, but also he took one of his friends or one of his soldiers' wives to himself, cheated with her, and then had a man executed for doing that. We think about Noah, who got drunk. We think about all of these people and the things that they did that would disqualify them, and God still used every single one of them. Why? Because God is in the business of using people that are unqualified and qualifying them. All it takes is, going back to the passage that we're at, is to realize that this does pertain to you. Regardless of whether or not, you know, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your gender, regardless of your age, regardless of your geographical location, regardless of your physical abilities and limitations, regardless of your past, regardless of where you stand economically, how much money you have, how popular, how much of a big of a reputation you've got, regardless of all of those things, this pertains to you. Jesus is the king of a kingdom that is not of this world. It is greater than this world and all the kingdoms of this world are subject to that. So everything in here in this book, in this gospel, pertains to you. Whether you choose to accept that doesn't change the truth. What did we say about facts versus truth? Facts change. Truth doesn't. And that includes our preconceived notions about truth. What we think doesn't change truth. What we think of Jesus doesn't change who he is. If we never acknowledge Christ as being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that doesn't change the fact that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Our thoughts, our notions, our ideas do not change the truth. However, if we submit to it, the truth will change all of those things for us. I want to finish this out by going to 1 John. Just real quick. 1 John chapter 5, it's towards the back of the book. You've got Revelation, Jude, and then uh, 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, and I want to read a few verses, and then I want to kind of close this out. We're going to be 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. I just like the wording of these, and I think it goes along with the truth claims of the gospel. So in this time that we're in, there's a lot of things that we don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't understand. There's a lot of things that we are confused by and we don't know one person's reporting one thing and one person's reporting another thing and sometimes the two reports conflict and contradict each other. So there's a lot of things that we don't know. However, there's several things that we do know because of what the Bible says and that's what I want to look at. Verse 18, we know, right? Not we think, not we believe, not we've heard, but we know. That's good in a time of such confusion and such chaos. It's good to know some things. We know that everyone who has been born of God, everyone who is of the truth, remember that, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So this is kind of a little bit confusing here, but what it's saying is everyone that's been born again, everyone that's been born of truth, everyone that's been born of God, the one who is eternally born of God, meaning the eternally begotten, a theological phrase, eternal generation, the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus, protects those that have been born again or born of God. And this is good to know. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Because we can say what we want about this virus, but one thing we know about this virus is that sickness and death are not of God. God may use them, 
He may control them and dictate what they do and where they can stop and how far they can go, but he does not create them. They are not of God. And the evil one does not touch him. So we know that this sickness is of the evil one. Look at this verse 19. We know that we are from God. It's another good thing to know. So first thing, we know that everyone who has been born again doesn't keep on sinning. Remember, we make Jesus the Lord of our life. We don't keep on sinning. We let Jesus dictate our actions and he doesn't dictate us to sin. And then we know that he protects us. Jesus protects us. And we know that the evil one cannot touch us if we're in the protection of Jesus Christ. And then it continues on. We know that we are from God. And we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. To end this out, I just want to say this. Jesus gives us understanding. Jesus protects us from the evil one. Understand that this world is led by the devil. He is named the God of this world and several other corresponding titles throughout scripture. The world is in the power of Satan. So all the things that are going on are not truth. They may be facts. They may be accurate observations, but they're not truth. The only truth is Jesus. And every second truth has to come from Jesus. So you know things based on whether or not they come from Jesus. And the things that we know is that we are of God that we are in Jesus and protected by that covenant with him, that we cannot be touched by Satan. If sickness gets a hold of us, sickness gets a hold of us, but that doesn't mean that the evil one does. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. And we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gives us understanding. And we know that in him, who is the true God, we have eternal life. Amen? Amen.